Hello, everyone. Welcome to the show, Me, Myself, and TBI. I'm your host, Christina Brown Fisher. My guest is author Tina Hutchins. Her book, Michael, My Brother, Lost Boy of In Excess, tells the touching story of her brother's rise from curious and rambunctious young kid to enchanting and popular lead singer of the Australian rock band In Excess. In 1997, Michael Hutchins was found dead in his hotel room in Sydney, suicide by hanging. Just five years before taking his own life, in 1992, Hutchins suffered a traumatic brain injury. A taxi driver attacked him, fracturing his skull. Tina says her brother was never the same. Thank you for joining me today, Tina. Oh, you're welcome, Christina. <laughs> it's a real pleasure to have you. Tina, you are the oldest of three. Yourself and your two younger brothers, Rhett and Michael. And in your book, you talk about how particularly Michael, at a very early age, displayed his interest in music and in performing. One account I found really funny and cute was about his first recording a song for a Christmas holiday toy. Tell me about that. Mm. That was so interesting. And um, how that came about was he was he was about 12 years old. And uh, my mother was at a cocktail party. My parents were very social in Hong Kong. And she was talking to this man who uh, had a, a large advertising company. And he said to her, you know, do you have any children? She said, yes, I have two young boys and a girl. She always she would always say a girl a little older when I was 12 years older than Michael. But um, he said, they don't sing. Does, do, do either of them sing? And she said, um, well, Michael could probably carry a tune. He said, I need her in the, him in the studio tomorrow. And I just want him to sing some Christmas songs. And they didn't know what it was for. They knew, you know, she took him in and he did very well. It was kind of quiet at first, but she started singing with him to move him along because he was in a, you know, he was in a recording booth with, with the headphones on and everything, something he'd never even seen before. But he sang three or four different Christmas songs and they said, oh, it's so it's on this, going to be on this recording. And the day came and they said, okay, it's out. And they went everywhere, all over town looking for this uh, recording and nobody had heard of it. And finally, somebody said, oh, it may be that, that little disc that goes into um, a toy. And she brought out this tiny Santa that had a slit in its stomach and you pushed <laughs> and there's Michael singing. <laughs> Do you remember what songs he was singing on the track? Oh, uh, Silent Night, uh, you know, the, the normal, yeah. The traditional Christmas <laughs> yeah. songs, yeah. And you mentioned Hong Kong and I think that's something that was really revelatory for me in reading the book was uh, discovering how much you and your family had traveled at such a young age. I mean, Michael had traveled in many ways all over the world long before he had started touring. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. My dad my, was my stepdad. But um, yeah, he uh, was always, he was changing jobs a lot and he loved to travel. And he just started taking these jobs that would move us around. I mean, I went to so many schools, I can't even remember. Um, 
But the boys, they spent most of their, uh, well, the first eight or nine years, uh, Michael went there, he was five. So he was 12, 12 or 13 when he left. Uh, so they did most of their schooling in Hong Kong. And then when he arrived back in Sydney, it was uh, a shock for him because Hong Kong, um, it's the colonial place. It's, it's um, you know, the colony was very British and things were very different in school and, and the children were different. And he arrived back in Australia with this accent because when you live in Hong Kong, especially as a child, you get this um it's called an international accent. So it's a little bit American, a little bit British, because those most of the people over there are either British or American. And uh, so the kids made fun of him and, you know, um, until this one boy walked up to him and said he would, um, you know, he said, uh, just hang around with me because, you know, they're really bad, especially if you have an accent, you're, you're different, you're wearing a different uniform. Um, and I've got this friend and he's really tall and, and the kids are afraid of him. So, and that was Andrew Farris that walked up to him and he did have this friend. Andrew Farris becomes his first friend when yes. he to Australia. Oh, yes. What a friendship that would become. Uh, yeah. The, who, who would know, huh? So, um, yeah, they were fast friends. And you mentioned Ferris, and of course, the Ferris brothers are critical. They are the founding members of In Excess. Michael was still in high school when he connected with them, uh, of course, not knowing at the time that they would form In Excess. But looking back at that time, Tina, and knowing who Michael was, is there any surprise in seeing the success that your brother and the band would later achieve? Well, the surprise was that Michael would get out in front of people. I mean, he was not, he was um, a very sort of fun-loving kid and a very easygoing kid. He was pretty wonderful that way. But to actually get out in front of people, um, I once put him in, while we were in Hong Kong, he was about eight years old. I put him in a, a children's fashion show that I was had put together. And... Um, and he first he stood back. I said, "It's time you've got to. It's your time to walk." And he, he, he really. And I pushed him. <laughs> I pushed him onto the stage, and and so and you know he started walking, and then pretty soon he was right into it. I mean, he turned around, he smiled at the people, but to actually get up on a stage, I, I never occurred to me he'd sing. I, I hadn't heard him sing, so. Um, that was quite a shock. <laughs> it really wasn't a surprise to me because he'd, he'd now found something that he loved. And up till then, the, all I saw him doing was writing poetry. <laughs> and I, he, the teachers would keep telling him, you know, I, I mean, you're not going to make a living writing poetry. <laughs> Little did they know. They were wrong. But, <laughs> yes, um, but, uh, you know, singing, I, I had no, I mean, he didn't sing around the house or anything, but um, they, yes, he, he would call me every now and then and, and tell me what they were doing. Next thing he, he was right, right as he was finishing school, 
they'd all finished high school except Johnny, the young Ferris, the drummer. And his parents, their parents decided to go back to live in Perth, which is way the other side of Australia to Sydney. So um, they were so determined because Johnny was showing signs of being a terrific drummer then. I mean, the, the Farris boys were brought up as musicians. They they always were musicians. So um, they decided they'd, you know, wait till the last day of school and they took off. Um, and Johnny did finished off the, the rest of his year while they were in Perth and the rest of the band just stayed there. Um, they would, uh, they started writing then. That's, that's when Michael really started writing. And, um, and they also did some gigs, you know, they'd grab Johnny from school on Friday afternoon and travel way up <laughs> the east side of, uh, and into terrible areas. I mean, it was where, it's where all the uh, mining is getting done. So these mining towns, they, it's just all men and, and they're just, they just come off. All they want to do is do some hard rocking and a lot of drinking in a bar every Friday night and Saturday night. And then they have to go back out again. Um, so it was pretty rough mob. And um, Michael with his accent slightly did not speak with an Australian accent um, to them he seemed effeminate. So being in a place like this, where he was very proper, did everything on stage, you know, jumped around just the way we see saw him later on. But they were very suspicious of him, the, the people who frequented these bars. Um, but he figured, well, if he could get through that, he could get through anything, you know. Uh, it was pretty rough, not easy, but after approximately nine months, um, John finished school and they came right back to Sydney and uh, just started their onslaught right away. Just started making up flyers and putting them around, speaking to people, you know. They were we, very focused. Very focused. They just knew because they'd been already been writing. Michael realized he did have a voice. He didn't know it was as good as it really was. He had no idea. Um, and they were all great musicians. They were really, this was, this was it. There was nothing else for them. And when it came to getting out there, um, they just decided they just would get in this great big, minivan <laughs> and with all the instruments one roadie who drove and uh they just i mean from melbourne to sydney we don't have especially back then we didn't have freeways so it would take it would take 12 hours they'd go all the way down there and uh do a gig and come back i mean they were happy to do that just to be on stage Michael Hutchins and In Excess were household names by 1992, racking up awards all over the world, following hits like Need You Tonight, Never Tear Us Apart, New Sensation. The Me, Myself, and TBI studios were rocking to New Sensation earlier this, <laughs> this, this afternoon. But that year would also mark what you considered the beginning of the end. What happened? In 92. 
Uh, around April or May of 92, he was in Denmark with Helena Christensen, his girlfriend. Um, they were staying at her apartment. She said, let's go get some uh, takeout. So they had just picked some takeout up and he was standing on, uh, well, just, he wasn't quite on the footpath. You know, he was standing there. He was just going up the footpath and this uh, cab came around the corner and, you know, the streets over there are very, are very tiny and um, he couldn't get past Michael and Michael seemed to be taking too long to, because there were people there. He was trying to get onto the footpath and um, the cab driver came to a screeching halt, got out of his cab, went straight up to Michael without any he, like no yelling or anything he just went up and punched him like a I think they call it a soccer punch a sucker punch it, yeah mm. sucker punch and um Michael was just I mean he's staying there with food in his hands Michael went straight back hit the back of his head um fractured his head and it uh, did damage to the olfactory, uh, which is up on the front left side, which um, right away he lost his um, senses of taste and smell. He was taken to the um, emergency and he was having trouble because, uh, you know, he wasn't speaking the language. Helena was trying to help him. And um, he just, they did um, x-rays and so forth. But, you know, the things that they do, something like that doesn't show up in an MRI or anything. So um, he insisted he wasn't going to stay the night. They actually wanted to keep him there. And he said, no, he's not. He right away was just angry. And, um and so he went back to Helena's um, apartment, and there he stayed for three weeks. She, she tells me that he didn't. Um, he kept saying no. He he didn't want to eat because he couldn't taste it. Um, he was very angry. He didn't. Um, he just wasn't himself, and he just stayed in the bedroom all the time. Um, and 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 he didn't really know what kind of um, damage he had done until he went to London sometime later and actually spoke to a doctor in London. You do talk about that in your book. About a month or so following the incident, Michael ended up seeing a specialist. Do you know what the doctor told him? I, I don't know exactly what the doctor told him because he was very quiet about that kind of, he didn't want to talk about it I, I would call him and he would be very short on the phone which was not like Michael at all um, but he just he just wanted to dismiss it so we didn't know a lot about it um, but apparently you know he, he did tell him he'd sustained um, a pretty bad injury and Michael um, obviously uh, was asking him what 
he should do. And, and all he did was put him on downers because that's what they were doing then. They didn't know a lot about head injuries. And if you were walking around, you seemed okay. So maybe you're a little upset, but, you know, so take a Prozac. When I called him, because I was worried about him, I, I mean, we kept in contact very closely. Um, he would call my mother probably once a week. She would call him if he didn't. And um, he usually was so excited to speak to any of us. And he would be until you, you asked about the accident or what happened. How did you find out about the accident? It was, wasn't until a couple of weeks later he told my mother. And she asked me to call him because she knew that he didn't always tell her everything. Um, but he didn't want to talk about it to me. He's, oh, it's fine. It's nothing. A bump on the head, you know? And is that what you thought? That's what I thought at the time. It wasn't until we got into maybe, you know, six months later and he was being, he just wasn't himself. And, and when I say he wasn't himself, what I mean is Michael was a very easygoing guy. Very easygoing. Um, you know, if you change plans on him, oh, well, okay. You know, um, he stayed close to his family, as I say, and he was in and out of L.A. where I was living all the time, you know, and he'd call and we'd go to dinner and he'd take my children to whatever, you know. Um, and he'd come over. He always asked for a um, baked dinner, an Australian baked dinner. <laughs> Um, and, uh, but he's, we noticed that sometimes we'd hear that he was in town and he didn't call. And that was odd to you? Very odd. I mean, yeah. Why was that odd? I mean, he never came into LA without calling me. I just knew that. So this seemed, it's like, what, what happened? What, why, why isn't he? He's sort of pulling away from the family or something. I mean, there was one instance that um, the band was in town, and I called him, and he said, "Oh, sure, the you know the tickets will be at the will call and blah blah." And I was taking my daughter and oh, like five of her little girlfriends, and. Um, and I called him and said, uh, will you be available before the show? And he said, no. I just, you know, I was sort of pang of, of disappointment and I didn't know what was going on. Uh, but we went to the show and afterward he came out and I said, how about some time with your, your uh, niece? And he spent a little time, and then he left. So the very next day, I called him at the hotel. I first sent a letter down by Korea and called him, and then he called me back and said, I want you to come down to the hotel right now. We need to talk. You've got some crazy stuff in your head. Because you had called him out. Yes. I said, I think you're getting a little full of yourself or something, which is so unlike you. That's what you saw. The change in his behavior to you came off as arrogance. Exactly. 
I mean, when did it come to where he, oh, he didn't know us all of a sudden. That's very strange, you know. And How did he respond? He said, that's ridiculous. You come down to the hotel. This afternoon, the two of us will talk. And I went down there. And we spent about three hours thrashing it out. And he, I swear he, he would say he didn't know what I was talking about. He didn't remember how he had behaved? Yeah, he didn't remember and he didn't think he'd been rude. I said, you didn't even acknowledge your family. What's wrong with you? That was completely out of the ordinary for him. Oh, uh, that would never happen. Never. And... I noticed actually that night before that the whole band wasn't around talking together. He was very much separate from the band too. And that was unusual. Unusual. Yeah. So we sat there and talked and he'd still, you know, he said, no, I'm, I'm just busy, you know, and, and I, I, I didn't think I was dissing you or anything. And, um, you know, it gets this a lot of pressure and it's mostly on me. I have to do all the interviews. Nobody wants to interview the other guys. I'm always in there. So while they're off playing golf, I'm doing interviews and then I'm on the stage that night. You know, it's just too much. I said, take time off. But these were things that he was already doing prior to the injury, though. He was. Absolutely. And it hadn't weighed on him before like this. Right. He'd never said anything before. You know, it was just, it was fine. He'd make jokes about it. The guys are playing golf and I'm sitting in a hotel room, you know, they're sending one interviewer in after another. And uh, so I feel like I should be getting more, but he'd joke about it, right. you know. Sure. And um, so, well, I, um, I assured him that, you know, there was something very strange and, and, and that he wasn't, he just wasn't his happy self. He just absolutely would not buy it. And he changed the subject. He said, hey, it's your birthday tomorrow. I said, oh, yeah, I didn't even think you'd remember. And he said, yeah, I got something great for you. He said, oh, you'll love this jacket. And it was some, I can't even remember. It was a designer jacket. I still have it. I love that jacket. But um, I wasn't convinced and I wasn't happy about that afternoon. He, he was being so, uh, normally he was have this smile. He still would do the smile and a big hug. He used to just hold on to me. But he then got very serious and very um, uh, defensive. He was defensive for most of the time. And I just it's just something wrong, you know? Did you make the connection, though? Were you ever thinking that this change that I'm seeing in Michael could potentially be linked to this accident that resulted in a brain injury? Um, I didn't, really. No, I'd never heard about anything like that, and he seemed fine, you know? He said he was fine, and he was working, and he didn't have any trouble with, you know, his poetry and, and uh, songwriting, and so I, no, I didn't, and, and even when he died, I didn't. It's been reported, Tina, that his girlfriend at the time of the attack, former supermodel Helena Christensen, 
swore to secrecy about the injury that left him with permanent brain damage. Why do you think it was important to him that no one know? Um, I think he was afraid that people would think he'd lost what he had. He didn't quite know what he had. And that when I say that, I mean that person that we saw on stage, it was the person we would see that that was him, you know, that he he had this, he did have charisma. It, it was just something in him that made people want to speak to him. He didn't have to be Michael Hutchins' uh, vocalist on the stage to have people come to him. He just had that certain magnetism. But I think he didn't understand it. And maybe he thought he'd lost it. Since his mind was full of lots of things, you know, with with this injury. Mm -hmm. Um, I was in in his villa in the south of France. We'd, We'd go there for Christmas, the whole family. We had the best Christmases there. He loved it. He loved to entertain. He loved to cook. And even when he told me he'd lost his senses of taste and smell, when he was cooking, he'd still put something up to under his nose, the wine or, you know, taste. It was like automatic. But I would see a sadness there. If you really watched him, you'd see a sadness. Because that never came back. I'm wondering, Tina, how would you make sense or explain to yourself what you saw in this new Michael, this Michael who had made such a departure from the easygoing, kind of laid-back, fun guy? How did you reconcile these changes? I guess he kept telling me that he was under a lot of pressure. I think he, you know, he was living a very fast life. Um relationships in the band weren't uh, very good at that time. Um, Partly, Michael was getting tired of doing the same, what he said was, you know, the same old songs, the same style. I mean, you think about, you know, we love these songs, but when you're up there singing every night the same set, it's, it must get hard. Um, he felt that the yes he couldn't get the move, the band to move into the 90s you know and um he'd had a lot of offers to record with other people not that would make him leave the band he still loved in excess but um what it what it did was, you know, he couldn't take those offers. He wanted to try, you know, different singing styles. He knew he could and um, he could do it. And he wanted to try writing with someone else just, you know, just to branch out and see what the possibilities. So there was a lot of frustration? A lot of frustration on that level. He was um, getting very tired of the, the, you know, supermodel thing just the lifestyle you know just following helena around when he wasn't because in excess wasn't touring as much at that time uh 
Um, so that left him with a lot of open time that he wanted to just spend at home, you know, and write and so forth. But Helena wanted him to come with her. So, um, and he did move to London. Well, he didn't move to London, but he got a, a place in London. So he was spending more time there because Helena was doing a lot of stuff in London. But then eventually that relationship broke apart and he was then involved with Paula Yates. Well, Paula Yates, <laughs> you know, his relationship in London started while he was with Helena. Okay. And that uh, kicked off a whole lot of other problems, you know. So did you see the combination of the conflict with the band, relationship conflicts? Did you did you rationalize to yourself, well, okay, maybe the Michael that I'm seeing, this this Michael who is sometimes short, sometimes not as easygoing as he used to be, did you see those things as the reason why he had changed so drastically in his behavior? Is that how you explained it to yourself? At first, I thought he'd changed because NXS had gotten so big and in particular, Michael. Michael was the face of Inexcess. There was a bit of jealousy in the band for that reason. Um, but I think most people want to interview the, the lead singer, but they didn't see it that way. It was supposed to be, you, you know, one for all. And um, so, uh, and, and then he uh, did get involved. He had a, a lot of spare time on his hands. I believe he was um, getting into some different types of drugs that I, I didn't, I, he and Red always kept that kind of thing uh, away from me, but it wasn't, I was not stupid, I know. Um, yes, he was trying other things and uh, he was spending time in London and he uh, he met up with um, Paula Yates. Paula Yates was married to Bob Geldof, who was widely known uh, for his connection to Live Aid. Uh, she'd been married to him, had had children with him. Uh, they were in the middle of a divorce, a very contentious custodial battle. And that relationship impacted her relationship with your brother and the child that she had with Michael. That's absolutely fair to say. That was probably the worst person he could have been with at that time with the brain injury. I mean, so it was such a contentious relationship. My, Michael had been a front man and the star of In Excess for many years. They had toured around the world multiple times on different albums. I certainly remember the Kick album and all the hits that one generated. But in your book, you talk about how the combination of where he was at with the band in terms of looking outside of the band for growth and new opportunities, and also where he was at with the relationship with his child's mother, Paula Yates. Um, the combination of all of these things, you say in your book, he could handle, if not for brain injury. Mm -hmm. uh, with a brain injury, though, yes. it was the worst possible combination. Absolutely. 
absolutely. Um, yeah, he could not hear the band. I mean, I was at a couple of shows, and I he he sort of slid over some words a couple of times. What do you mean slid over? Well, he would he would be singing a song, um, and he'd go he'd he'd go into you know between the chorus he'd go off onto a different line he was forgetting the lyrics and I asked him about this you know I went back I didn't want to make him crazy I mean at that stage I was starting to sort of tiptoe a little bit around him the way he explained it was that he goes off somewhere else in his head sometimes because he's sick of being on stage and singing the same, same songs. But did you think that was the real reason or did you think there was something more to it? No, I, I, I felt that he really was forgetting, but he wouldn't own to that. He wouldn't admit it. No. And nobody in the band said anything. Well, they didn't know about the brain injury. Yeah, yeah. They may have seen, it's possible that they would have seen his behavior as, you know... He's the lead guy. He can kind of do whatever he wants. No one's making the connection that it could possibly be linked to this brain injury because no one knows about it. No, absolutely. That's right. He was keeping it quiet. They knew he'd, oh, hit his head, but he didn't, you know, there was nothing else. Um, He, they thought he was being full of himself. Did he ever talk about Tina getting the sense of uh, smell back? Was was that permanent, the, the loss of smell and taste? I was on the phone with him right after Tiger was born. And he said, I'm cradling her right now. But you know what? I can't even smell that wonderful baby smell. That must have been heartbreaking. It was heartbreaking to hear and it was heartbreaking to... Uh, I just, it, it was horrible. I mean, I, I can, I just know being on the phone, it was like we were crying together. He just, that meant so much to him. Yeah. You mentioned in the book, Tina, about coming across a article that someone wrote about their own history of traumatic brain injury and realizing their experience reflected what you had seen in Michael. How so? Yeah, a- Amy Zelma wrote that. Um, she's wonderful, you know, writing. She's written a couple of books on TBI from her own experience. Um, when I read that, I, I read it over a couple of times and something just like a light bulb went off. What stood out to you? The way she would say that, uh, how she would forget things. Uh, that that stood out to me and I, I just thought about Michael, you know, um, uh, forgetting his uh, lyrics to his own songs. Um, And then she talked about how, you know, most doctors don't even acknowledge this, that there are plenty of um, uh, football players and so forth. And it's, they're only starting now to see and, and see this is a real thing. So this article starts you putting pieces together? Yes. What were the pieces you started putting together? Well, the fact that Michael's, um, his his personality had changed. She had talked about that. And uh, so I thought, yes, he's had changed too. He just, just sort of, you weren't sure who you were going to see today. Um, the fact that um, she 
she lost some friends because they wouldn't believe it was a real thing. They kept thinking that they kept saying she's, you know, get over it. The, that accident was a year ago, two years ago. And she said, um, that's not how traumatic brain injuries work. They're with you now. You can, some people, their whole personality changes completely the rest of their life. They are not the same person. And I thought about that and thought about the fact that, you know, the, the band was treating him differently because they couldn't understand him and how I had actually treated him differently. I'd been angry with him, you know? Um, and I thought that must be, that's obviously the reason because how could somebody as sweet as Michael change that much? And he didn't do anything about that that injury. He never went to anybody to uh, after speaking to Helena, after speaking to um, other people around him, his management. He never went to anybody to talk about this, you know, what was happening to him. Just that everything was driving him crazy. That, you know, he can't make people happy. And, and what was, he hadn't changed. What's wrong with everybody? Richard Lowenstein, a collaborator of In Excess, he had directed some of their videos and later a documentary about Michael. Explain his role in helping you understand what happened to your brother. He had the autopsy investigated. He did. Where With me, I threw it away because I didn't want to read it. He took it to uh, somebody who, who um, is an expert on this and understands what they're talking about that's going on in the brain. And she said, look, we have found, I mean, it was different back then in the 90s, but we have found that people with this kind of um, uh, injury, sooner or later when I'm reading this, this person was going to take his life anyway. That it would be very unusual. That would ha- He would have to have a lot of people around him. He'd have to have a lot of support not to take his life. And he didn't have that. He was just treating it as got this, you know, this bump on the head and, and I'm crazy. The band is nuts and I don't want to do that anymore. I want to do different music and they won't let me. It's, you know, it seems to me that a lot of loud noise, bright lights, touring, lack of rest, all of these things uh, make for a disaster, uh, particularly for someone who is post-brain injury. Oh, absolutely. Brain injury, those are the things. Uh, loud noises, weird lighting, um, and yeah, the just, just being on tour with a lot of people around you, people shouting at you, wanting you all the time. Um, those are the things... <laughs> the main things that can make you crazy when you have, you should avoid at all cost. He was doing exactly what he shouldn't have been doing. And he didn't want to finish the tour. Uh, And he said he would see me in Australia. Do you recall, Tina, how you found out about his suicide? Yes. Um, Michael was in Los Angeles, he left on the Sunday night. He got to Australia on the Tuesday. I'd been seeing him in Los Angeles. When he called before he was leaving, he just before he 
called off, he, he said, um, I really don't want to go. I just don't want to get that flight. I said, don't. Other people call off shows. He had six more shows in Australia. Other people take time out. You know, a band, somebody gets ill, somebody's wife gets ill. You can t put these off until mid-year or something. Take some time. You need it. No, I can't let anybody down, he said. Looking back, knowing what you know now, what is it, what is it you think you may have done differently? Do you think you would have been perhaps more aggressive about pushing him into being seen by a medical team and getting treatment for this? Well, I didn't have all the information with me at the time. So I don't get upset with myself. I sometimes think that I shouldn't have been so easygoing with him on those last conversations. So I just told him I look forward to seeing him in uh, three weeks. And, um, and he left. And uh, so that opportunity never came. That never came because that was Sunday night for me. And then the following Friday night, I came home to a message on my machine from Rit. And it was, um, call me, don't, don't put television on, don't talk to anybody, call me as soon as you get in. Just don't talk to anybody. Just please call me. I'm at mom's. Right. What would you say to the sister, the mother, or the brother of a loved one who is seeing a dramatic change in behavior? And somewhere in that loved one's history, they know that they suffered some sort of head injury. Right. I would say to somebody... Who, who can see changes in their loved one and they know they've had um, an, an injury to the head. They insist. They insist they'll take them to the doctors. They'll go with them. Let's look into this a little more because you, you may not notice changes in yourself, but we see changes. Do this for me. Just, you know, placate me. <laughs> You know, I would have done that had I known. You know, mostly the problem with all of us in the family is we were in different countries. You know, we would catch and, and sometimes when I'd want to talk to Michael about anything, he'd, he'd say, no, let's just have a good dinner. And, you know, I'm only here for three days. And, you know, so that is... Um, a that's a very di different situation to what most people have. But, you know, if you're in a position where you can speak to your loved one, go with them. Just insist. And, and if that doctor says, no, I don't see anything, but you know, you have a feeling, you can see changes, go to another doctor. Thank you so much, Tina. Tina Hutchins, her book is Michael, My Brother, Lost Boy of In Excess. Thank you for joining me today, Tina. 
You're welcome. Thank you very much. Thank you, Christine. To order a copy of the book, please visit the Me, Myself, and TBI website.